Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you're all enjoying the holidays and settling in after what I'm sure was a very busy time in your life. Maybe you're finally getting around to unpacking those holiday gifts. Setting up that new Alexa or Google Home device, maybe? Or you could finally have gotten that pet camera so that you can go away without having to worry about the little ones. Hell, maybe you went all out and got that new smart fridge you've been seeing so many commercials for on TV. Well, what if I told you that these little treats come with a price? What if I told you that some of your things might not be as safe as you expected? My name is John Cordes, and this week, we're going to go back to a familiar topic that we've covered in the past. We'll switch it up a little bit, but instead of telling you just one story, I'm going to tell you the story of many things. More specifically, we're going back to talk about that internet of things, and what the shell else we might not have covered in that first episode. So join me this week so I can talk to you a bit about some major breaches in privacy, some interesting stories, and how that fridge might be moonlighting as a hacker without your knowledge. Now, before we get into the hacks and craziness, I feel like I should do a bit of a refresher for anyone that might not be super familiar with IoT devices. And when I say IoT, I mean the Internet of Things. Broadly speaking, the Internet of Things is any kind of piece of technology that has to communicate across the Internet in order to function. In the past few years, that term has largely become associated with things like home security systems, personal assistants, and a myriad of other app-controlled life assistant bots. But really, it goes beyond that. I said it in the intro. Maybe it's a fridge that lets you peek in remotely, or has a built-in Android tablet that lets you order food. It could be your smart lights, or your home router. Or more seriously, it could be your medical alert system, your car, or your home heating control. All these things that reach out to the internet for operation and control make up the Internet of Things. If you've ever had to sync it to your home Wi-Fi, it's probably a part of it. For any of my newer listeners that are just coming into the show, this isn't the first time we've had this discussion. If you want, you can even go back and check out episode 12 for stories about how stuff like sex toys that connect to the internet can get hacked and cause real problems. So let's start rolling with the concept of the Internet of Things and home assistance and cover something that I think it's possible a lot of people who listen might have. A digital assistant. Specifically, I'm talking about the Google Home device. You know, Google's answer to Siri and Alexa. This hack comes hot off the press, actually, from the last days of 2022. On December 29th, it was reported that a security researcher named Matt Kunze had found a way to effectively make a Google Home device near him into his own personal wiretap. Moreover, it turned out the process was relatively easy to do. I want to cover how this works so that you get the full picture. We'll take it step by step and I'll explain what's happening, then we'll circle back at the end. First, the hacker just needs to be close enough to your Google Home that it can pick up the signals it sends over Wi-Fi. I want to really stress this, there's no missing step here. This is step number one. I'm the attacker here, and I don't need your email, I don't need to know your Wi-Fi network password, and I don't need to know anything other than the fact that there's a Google Home nearby. You might be sitting in your car or at the gym thinking to yourself, but John, how do they know that? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. Everything that communicates over Wi-Fi produces a signal, right? Your router just receives that signal and gives you the functionality to get to the internet safely. But there's no magic wrapper around that signal hiding it. If I'm close enough, I can use a wireless adapter that's capable of monitoring for those signals to start searching for all the devices connecting via Wi-Fi. One of these monitors can run as little as $30 on Amazon. The next thing you would do would be to narrow the list that you got down, because I'm not just going to get Google Home devices. 
part of what's transmitted here is the MAC address of a device that's connecting. And the thing about MAC addresses is that the starting few characters all identify the manufacturer. I would be able to see things from Apple, Nest, Google, HP, and any other company that you can think of. So what do I do? I look specifically for Google's prefix, and I make a little note of it. The next part I think is pretty neat, and something that I've done personally in my own test environment before. Using those monitor devices, you can also send packets and force a device to de-authenticate from its wireless network. If this happened to your laptop, it would look like you just dropped off the Wi-Fi, but for many personal assistants, this is going to trigger it to enter the setup mode and reconnect. Now I'm the attacker, and I'm going to connect to the Google Home setup network. That setup network is the initial Wi-Fi that you've got to connect to so that you don't need to connect a cable in order to get your assistant up and running. You'll recall there's no real security here if you've done it before, so the attacker can just log into that piece of a Google Home, and now I need to get three bits of information. In this case, it's the name of a device, its certificate, and its cloud ID. What I can do with that information is actually go back out and link my own account to that device as well as the users whose Google Home it is. And I can do that using the built-in API. That's how you're able to obtain that information above, and that's how you're able to send a request out to the Google server to add yourself as a valid user. Once it comes back, now I'm technically an owner of a device as well, and I can operate it remotely once it reconnects to that home network. This includes doing everything that it can do, all relying on what's configured in the house. So really in this case, it's only as dangerous as you've made it. I can see the history of commands that were run. I could drop in on the audio. I could blast my own music or message. Maybe even try to order something. After all, it's my device now too. Why shouldn't I? The sky is the limit. I could add in maliciously coded routines maybe. As long as they made it for the Android store and are available for Google Home, then what's stopping me? I've got my own personal view into your house, into your life, and into your habits. And I don't think I want to leave. It should be noted that many Google Homes are set to update automatically though, so this has already been patched. But it's a great example of how much we allow these devices to control in our lives, and what the compromising of one of them could actually do to you. Thankfully, this was a security researcher that found out about it and reported it, but it's also entirely possible that this has been known about just not reported by other threat actors. It might have already been used maliciously. The next hack I want to talk about is a bit out of date, but it's a good exercise in talking about unnecessary features. We're going to talk about webcams. Specifically, we're going to talk about TrendNet webcams. Back in the early 2010s, TrendNet webcams were pretty popular, especially for security cameras. They're still around today if you want to go take a look. You can buy one if you'd like. The specific camera we're talking about, though, was the Model IP110. In January of 2012, a research blog called Console Cowboys published an article titled TrendNet Cameras. I always feel like somebody's watching me. The goal was to find out anything interesting about the cameras, and the site downloaded the latest firmware and applied it to the camera to give it the best simulation. But then they spent a bit of time breaking down the firmware file itself to see what they might be able to find. Using a bug that let him make a copy of part of that firmware file and then decompress it into its full contents, the researchers were able to find that this was a compressed file system. So, similar to how you have all your directories in Apple, Linux, and Windows, they were able to look around and see all the directories for this camera 
and what the operating system that operated it looked like. After spending some time navigating around, there was one directory that they really honed in on. This was titled slash server slash CGI bin slash Anani. That's A-N-O-N-Y. In that directory was something called mjpeg.cgi. Hmm, mjpeg. Maybe it's something to do with image output? Could that be it? Well, they decided to go to their camera and try connecting to it with the web interface, but appending the link of what they found. So it looked like the IP address of their camera slash anani slash mjpeg.cgi. And what they found floored them. It was a straight live stream from the camera. Okay, so with access to the camera, they were able to get a live stream now. But the researchers gave TrendNet the benefit of a doubt. According to the post in the blog, they figured that Anani must mean anonymous, and that that must mean that there's an anonymous user setting that can be disabled. Well, guess what? Even after setting up users, the method worked, and there didn't appear to be any way to disable that kind of access and trigger authentication before loading the live stream. And now some of you might have been thinking to yourselves, well, if it's a private network, what is there to worry about? And to that, I would refer you to a little site we've talked about several times in the past, Shodan. Shodan.io is a site that essentially operates as a search engine for any device connected to the internet. Right now, if I go to Shodan.io, I can see around 8,000 TrendNet devices publicly accessible to the internet. Knowing that this was a big hack from 2012, how many do you think there were back then? Because Shodan was around and you could search it. The answer, 9,500. Now, keep in mind, this is a vulnerability found in a specific version of firmware, so that doesn't mean that there are 9,500 exposed devices, just that there's a potential pool of that many. To really figure it out, Council Cowboys made a tool to automate looking at vulnerable cameras and come back with which devices actually were impacted. They landed on about 350 devices that they could go in and snoop in on. Some were businesses, some were homes, all were insecure. I've got a screenshot of two of the camera outputs from the initial breach in the episode transcript at whatmichellepod.com. One of them looks like a little pinhole looking out into an alley, and one of them looks like the front of a business. It gets worse, too. Some of the vulnerable devices were being used as baby monitors or as patient cameras in a hospital. Later in that year, due to that breach, the FTC filed sanctions against TrendNet, and according to CNET, under the terms of that settlement, TrendNet cannot misrepresent its software as, quote, secure, and must get an independent security assessment of its program once a year for 20 years. These days, an annual independent security assessment is pretty commonplace for a lot of major industry, but this was a big blow to it at the time. For their part, TrendNet did try to take action once this was made public. In a statement they made in September of 2013, they detailed their response, and part of that statement read, quote, Upon awareness of a TrendNet IP camera hack in 2012, TrendNet immediately initiated every effort to respond to and resolve the hack. TrendNet immediately released updated firmware, which eliminated the published hack for related product models. Product shipments were stopped and corrective firmware updates were performed for all affected models. Substantial resources were dedicated toward the goal of bringing awareness to this hack for all the consumers. You might have heard that and thought to yourself, great, they've got their stuff together, let's move on and move out. But instead of moving on to the next subject, I think I'm just going to fast forward. We'll go to 2017 when, you guessed it, it happened again. 
it was at this time that Refirm Labs, a startup based around ex-NSA workers, found that there were still vulnerabilities that allowed snooping of surveillance cameras by even rookie hackers. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but this is what Terry Dunlap from Refirm said in an interview with Fortune. He said, quote, I wouldn't even call this a hack, because it doesn't take any sophistication. The vulnerability, which affects TrendNet's TV-IP344PI camera model, allows hackers to tune into these cameras' video feeds that require neither authorization or authentication, merely the knowledge of a device's IP address and easily obtained piece of information. You know, that identifying information that we just said was found basically at no risk on Hacker Google. This called into question two major factors. First, did Trinet actually care? Second, what happened to that security audit? Shouldn't it have caught this? To answer those, I'm going to put on my own cyber nihilism hat and give my honest take on it. To answer question number one, no, I don't think they really cared. It's more likely that they patched the security hole, did the required amount of work to move on, and kept producing cameras with vulnerabilities without going too deep into it. Because putting higher amounts of effort in to try to find similar security issues would require time and money. Perhaps more time and more money than another slap on the wrist. It's a balancing game with a lot of these issues where if the cost of the penalty is less than the cost to fix it, then why would anyone bother? The second question, well, I don't know the exact details on the independent security review, but what I do know is that the field for that kind of thing is huge. There are cheap ones, there are expensive audits, there are audits that do the bare minimum, and there are audits that find the smallest nooks and crannies. That's all to say that they could have fished for the lowest cost that would technically satisfy their needs and called it. I don't know for sure if that's what happened here, but it's happened at other companies and it's going to continue to happen as a way to get around restrictions. The last piece I will offer as a bit of a benefit of a doubt to TrendNet is that, at the very least, it took a team of ex-NSA researchers to find the vulnerability. So while it might have been easy to exploit, the discovery could have taken some time. I want to stay on the topic of webcams again for this next one, but instead of vulnerable firmware, we're going to talk a little bit about how poor security controls led to hackers being able to spy on an insane amount of high-profile targets. Let's talk about the hacker first. In this case, it's someone named Tilly Kotman. Kotman is a Swiss hacker that, according to threat intelligence, deals less in disruption and more around exploratory efforts. Long and short of that is that Kotman pokes and prods at stuff not to sell it or to stay on the network for extended period of times, but more because she can and to pull what she can at that moment. Kotman, a Swiss native born in 1999, had a habit of doing this and even before the breach we're about to talk about, had a bit of a history. On March 18th, 2021, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that a federal grand jury had indicted Kotman for conspiracy to commit computer fraud and abuse, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and aggravated identity theft. So at what, 22 years old at this point, she had a cyber rap sheet that was already pretty long. Honestly, depending on how much I could find about her story after this, I might even try to do an episode about her major efforts. Anyways, back to March of 2021, because that's when Kotman set her sights on a security company called Mercata. Mercata, much like TrendNet, supplied security cameras and webcams that were attached to the internet, and so this made it a bit of a juicy target. What Kotman did was what I think many hackers and nation states might have done too. She searched for, and in this case found, user credentials from a breach impacting a Mercata account. 
according to Tilly, it was found publicly and didn't need to be purchased or bartered for. It was already well available to anyone who was willing to look. Using that account, the hackers involved were able to gain access to the Vercada network, which, as a result, it turned out meant that they had admin access to all of Vercada cameras. But how does one account lead to all that? Let's look at their incident report that Vercada put out. I'll start by giving you the juicy details from their summary. They said, quote, from March 8th to 9th, 2021, Attackers compromised Verkata's platform and accessed customer data, including video for a subset of Verkata customers. In all, 97 customers had their cameras accessed and video or image data viewed. Eight of those customers had access control product data accessed, including badge credentials. Separately, eight customers had their Wi-Fi credentials accessed. In total, that attack represents less than 2% of Verkata's approximately 6,000 customer population, but finally, the attackers downloaded a list of command users, including names and email addresses, but no passwords, plus a list of the Verkata sales orders. The way it turned out that the attackers got in was because a misconfigured customer support server was exposed directly to the internet as a part of that internet of things. It turned out that the account they had credentials for was a support administrator, which meant that they were able to log into the customer support server and then use that admin account to create valid support sessions and begin looking at customer data and cameras. The support team was allowed to do this because sometimes customers would open support tickets to maybe change the exposure on a camera or edit the video quality settings and support needed to be able to log in and do that in order to help them out. But who were the customers? Well, let's look at the Vericata website and see who they're touting as big customers. I'm just gonna read them off as I see them. We've got the city of Las Vegas, Tesla factories, Prism Healthcare, Petrock College, the Chartwell School, Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital, the Oakland Chinatown Chamber of Commerce, Virgin Hyperloop, the Dairy Farmers of America, Citrix. I could go on and on. The list is massive and it spans multiple continents. Naturally, they chose some of the juicier ones to look at and all in all, they were able to access over 150,000 of the cameras across those customers. A massive breach of privacy. Kotman and Kerr did end up taking some data too. According to the network logs, they managed to exfiltrate about four gigs of data ranging from a list of client users, including names and email addresses, to a list of sales orders, as we said. What Verkata does know is that no camera was viewed for more than 90 minutes, and an estimated average of 11 minutes of view time happened for each camera that was hijacked. To add on to the fact that Kotman and crew aren't disruption-based groups, they did kind of affirm that there was no evidence of tampering or video deletion either. So everything was left relatively as is. At the end of this all, we're left with a twofold problem. The IoT devices having so much easy access by the customer support server and lax security practices that don't monitor for data breaches of internal accounts. If that account was as easily found as they made it out to be, there are many tools in the industry that could have alerted Verkata and triggered an immediate password change process so that this very problem never would have happened. It was a perfect storm of problems that resulted in an insane view into many different companies. Verkata would go on to disable the admin accounts while they fixed it and communicate to the companies what cameras were accessed, but by then the damage had been done. Kotman and the crew had gotten away with it. Well, they were identified, but they got away with it as in, you know, they actually did it.
The next one we're going to talk about had no real world damage done to it, but it was insanely scary to think about. I'm going to move us to August 29th, 2017, because on that day, the Food and Drug Administration issued a recall. Now, this recall wasn't just for a pill or some kind of food. It was for St. Jude Medical implantable cardiac pacemakers. These devices are implanted under the skin and have lead wires that travel to the heart. They can be used to help correct irregular heart rhythms or give pacing to weak hearts that need it. According to the FDA, they had received information about potential vulnerabilities that impacted the pacemakers and described what could occur in the release that they put out. They said if an exploit occurred, it could quote, allow an unauthorized user, in this case, not a doctor, to access a patient's device using commercially available equipment. This access could be used to modify programming commands to the implanted pacemaker, which could result in patient harm from rapid battery depletion or administration of inappropriate pacing. So they can either drain the battery of your pacemaker or tell it to make your heartbeat wrong. They're saying that someone in signal range could modify the settings of the pacemaker. The recall in this case wasn't a recall like you'd think. They didn't need to yank 465,000 devices out and replace them. They simply needed a firmware update that would make it so authentication and authorization had to occur before changes were made from then on out. Why that wasn't included at first is beyond me. There wasn't any known instance of an actual attack occurring here, but it's something that I wanted to make you aware of. And that's the fact that IoT devices are not always just home life equipment. There is an entire field dedicated to the security of healthcare and medical devices like these pacemakers, because that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you go to DEF CON, there's an entire village dedicated to medical hacking and medical security. Let's look at a couple examples. Some people need to temporarily wear internet connected monitors in order for doctors to get data that will result in prescriptions and medical advice. What if some of that data was falsified? Could it be possible to give someone medication based around a lie? What about internet connected insulin pumps? A very real danger to many people who are diabetic where someone else might be able to control how much insulin they get without their knowledge. The point I'm trying to make here is that if you look, really look, the amount of things we connect to the internet and the damage that can be caused for them is like a fractal shape. You can keep going deeper and unlocking new smaller branches, but it never seems to really stop. All right, I've got one last one for you. This time, we're going to talk about something I think tends to be forgotten about as a part of the internet of things. It's your router. It's at the edge of the internet for your home and it's technically accessible from the outside world. I'm gonna take you back to 2016 when a bit of a culmination of everything we've talked about so far happened at once. We talked about how internet devices are constantly being scanned and about how bad account and password management was a constant problem as it gave hackers an easy in. Well, what if they never changed the default password at all? What could we do then? How many devices would be impacted by that? Well, in mid-2016, a college student named Paras Jha and his colleague, Josiah White, wrote the source code for something they called the Mirai botnet. You might have heard the term botnet before, but if you haven't, you can think of it kind of like a hive mind. That is to say, it's many, many different bodies, all acting under one central brain or from one command system. But what does that have to do with your routers? Well, the way the botnet worked was that it scanned the internet connected devices looking for a Linux operating system known as ARC, that's A-R-C. 
once a device was found, a combination of security vulnerabilities and default credentials being used meant that Mirai was able to log in and zombify a router, adding it to the hive mind. From there, that router or device could also perform scanning and attacking functions. Once a certain number of devices were infected, they could be used in what was called a distributed denial of service attack. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to take a step back so that I can explain that concept to anyone that doesn't know what it is. I want to start by placing you in a room with, say, 100 people, and you're trying to give a speech. A standard denial of service attack would be one guy standing up and shouting, Hey! 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 Hey, stop talking! Stop talking! Stop! Stop! He's effectively ruining your speech because of how he's non-stop shouting. But that can be rectified pretty easily by having security escort him from the premises. That is a standard denial of service attack. Now imagine the same scenario, except every time the person shouting might switch from one person to another, or multiple people might be shouting at the same time. The security guard might be able to help, but he couldn't get everyone because they're spread out and coming from different places. This is a distributed denial of service attack, where it's distributed across all these different people, and that's what the Mirai botnet was created to do. Distribute the load across your routers. Now, allegedly it started out as a way to grief individually hosted Minecraft servers, and the companies that protected those servers. But things snowballed real quick, because in an effort to hide their own activity as a part of this, the creators leaked their own source code online. I think the thought process was that if it was out in the wild and people used it, then they might have just gotten drowned out in the tone of all these different attacks, not necessarily designated as the creators by law enforcement. But once it hit the wild, people started to see what it could really do. In fact, in October of 2016, Mirai was used to take down some of the biggest internet platforms there are. This included sites like Netflix, Twitter, Spotify, Reddit, and many news outlets. The attack, which targeted the service that runs the domain name resolution for many of these websites, even took down much of Amazon's AWS environment. Many, many people would try to get online that day to go about their normal browsing habits, only to find that nothing was loading at all. What some of them didn't know was that it was their own router participating in the attack that brought down their favorite sites. And it wasn't limited to just routers too. Once it kept infecting, it would try default credentials on anything that was relatively similar. You could have cameras coming in, doing the same kind of attack as long as it ran the same platform and they found default credentials. This attack was one of the largest distributed denial of service attacks in recorded internet history. The creators were eventually rounded up by the FBI, but that didn't mean that the malware was gone. There are variants out there still searching for devices with default credentials that can be added to the hive mind. And while there are better pieces in play for detection and protection, ultimately it can still be a major concern if put to the right use. So I have to ask, did you change your router's default password? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Most routers these days are starting to veer away from one standard username and password and have a individual password for each router but that doesn't mean all of them. But still, maybe double check. I'm gonna close out with the same ending I had last time, because some of you might be asking yourself, so what can I do to help mitigate this risk? And it's nothing you probably haven't heard from me or whatever podcasts you listen to about cybersecurity or from your company's annual security training. So I apologize for kind of regurgitating it, but to start, you could use a complex password. And I know there are going to be some of you out there rolling your eyes at this, but just get a password manager. 
maybe not LastPass right now, we are kind of going for something. I actually just decided to start moving from LastPass to my own internally hosted service. But the point is, they'll take care of a complexity for you, and as long as you remember that initial password to get in, the rest is on them. That's how many of these hacks work. You might also want to go a step beyond that and figure out a rotation on when you should be changing your password. There's a reason your company makes you do it every once in a while, and it's not to mess with your routine. It's to avoid a Verkata incident or a Colonial Pipeline incident and accidentally leave your password lying around where someone else can find it and use it on your stuff. The other thing you can do is enable two-factor authentication. I don't think all routers have this, but I know some of them do, and I know many IoT platforms have it for that initial login. That's a tool that's either going to text you, email you, call you, or rely on some pre-generated code from an application like Google Authenticator in order for you to put that in after your password and get you into a session. It's that concept of something you have, which is the code, and something you know, which is the password, working together to make it a bit harder for someone to take control of your account or your device without you knowing. And if you do want to, you could go a bit nuclear with it and always run everything yourself. There are security systems that operate on a bit more of a closed loop network out of your own home, like the one I'm doing, that you could use. In that case, you can have a system that you control and doesn't ever need to touch the internet, just your home network. I will admit, it's not super cost-effective or time-effective, and it comes with the responsibility of maintaining your own uptime and your equipment, but like I said, it's all about the price of convenience versus privacy. When you do stuff like this, you have to consider it. Is it worth the effort, or are you willing to accept what happens if, like LastPass, your data gets breached and your passwords might get out there? The last option, really? Just don't do it. At the end of the day, these aren't necessities, are they? You don't need an Alexa or a Google Home. You don't necessarily need a smart TV or a smart fridge. They just make things easier for you. And if you want them, who am I to knock you for it? After all, I've accepted some of this risk into my own life, but I've taken precautions where I could make sure it doesn't come back to bite me, as can you. At the end of the day, we have the responsibility to secure ourselves just as much as the manufacturer in some cases. So where do you want to draw the line? That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening to me explain what the shell is going on with IoT and letting me talk for some of the crazy breaches around it. Before you go, I have some stuff that you might be interested in. First, for anyone that's new to the show or might not know about this, you can join us in the Discord and talk about the show or just hang out. Now that we've started back up, I'm going to try to be a bit more active there so that you can reach out, talk to me or anyone else online, and offer up suggestions that you might have for the show, because I would love to hear them. I genuinely would. I want this to be the show that you want to listen to. You can find the link to join that on my website, whattheshellpod.com, or in the description below. On that site, you'll also find the transcript of the episode, and should you be interested, my other socials, like Instagram and Twitter, both of which are at shell underscore pod. And then I do want to ask that if you liked this episode, maybe leave a review or a rating on your platform of choice. It does go a little bit of a way in terms of getting me up there in the charts so other people can find the show. If that's not your thing, maybe just recommend your favorite episode to someone you think might like it. Word of mouth is honestly my favorite way the show has spread. But I think I'm good for now. I think I'm done. I'm going to let you go and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next episode.